Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Merrow. This season is sponsored by Webs. Webs, America's yarn store, is your source for everything you need for your next weaving project. Webs carries a wide selection of yarns, looms, tools, and accessories, and you can save up to 25% every day with the Webs discount. Visit yarn.com for more info. My guest is Anita Luvera Mayer. Anita is known as a weaving teacher, and we have her video, Creative Cloth, in the weaving section of Longthread Media. But Anita's real passion is surface design and how cloth and clothing let us say who we are. Good morning out there in Washington. Good morning, Anne. Now, even though I'm talking to you, I guess it's not quite first thing in the morning, and you're just wearing black and white, I see that what you're wearing is beautiful and so thoughtful. You're wearing a a white lace top and just a big, bold necklace that's also made out of fabric. So you put a lot of thought into what you wear and what others wear. Absolutely. I think that women need to celebrate their individuality by how they dress and how they carry themselves. It has nothing to do with size. Style is an attitude, not a size. And I have gone through my life and I do a great deal of basic black and I make creative coverings to go over them. My garments are not tailored with darts cutting. They're very simple shapes, mostly inspired by ethnic. And because I don't have the tailoring skill, you know, my machine, sewing machine and I have not spoken for years. So I have to find a way. Does that mean that you're sewing everything that you make by hand? That is precisely what I mean. My very most favorite thing to be doing is having a needle in my hand, followed by a shuttle at the loom. But I always made cloth as a canvas to embellish. Embroidery and surface design is my passion. So it individualizes very simple shapes. That's so interesting. I I think I had heard of you as a weaver. And and I think that we have your video, Creative Cloth, in as a as a weaving video. But from what you're saying, that's that's only one of your tools. That was my tool for a number of years till maybe 10 years, 10 years ago. A woman named Lori Mall came to Anacortes and opened a wonderful yarn store and asked me if I'd be interested in making garments to sell. All the 40 years I was teaching and making clothing, you know, it was for people I love, for exhibition, barter. I bartered with dentists, you know, and doctors with clothing, but I did not sell. I just never, that's not why I did what I did. And when she asked me that, it was a turning point. I'd gone back to school in my actually mid to late 70s, taking an eight-year course on design and creativity. And I rapidly realized that weaving is just too time-consuming to weave and sell a garment at a reasonable price. So I turned to what I'd learned in class So all the garments for the last eight years, I would say 80 percent, I'm dyeing silk, dyeing fabric and making simple shapes 
not at the loom. Everything is hand done. They all have hand dyed linings. I have done a few weaving things. At the same time, during the pandemic, uh, I wove a tapestry pillow for each of my children. They all got a set of hot pads and hand towels for their kitchens. So I was back at the loom doing that. I'll never leave the loom. But this block of time has focused on using what I learned and and doing off-loom clothing. Now, I'm a weaver and I, I'm pretty much weave on my rigid heddle. I like very simple cloth. But like a lot of weavers at all levels, I have not cut into my cloth anything except right across the warp to, to, to end it. <laughs> well, that was my issue. You know, I would look at a piece of cloth I had woven for three days with quivering hand and scissors, un- unable to murder this child I had just made. I just, and I thought I discovered Little did I know uh, that I could weave two rectangles, sew them up the back and have what, of course, we now know as a ruana. And I thought I discovered kimonos. They're all rectangular pieces. So my focus from the get to there is maybe two things that were fabrics cut. So I just have gone. And I'm also in the weaving world has been known as the queen of tabby. One, three, two, four. I mean, that's all I wove and continue to weave, making simple cloth that I then would adorn. So that's been my story all the way through. And tell me about some of the different adornments you use. Like right now you're using lace and I know you love uh, a needle and thread, but I'm I'm guessing that, that that you did not actually create all of that as needle lace. So some of the things are are found, but then you're also doing beadwork and stitching. So what are some of the different techniques you use? I, I My friends maintain they know it's my garment if it has wrapped rings upon it. So wrapped rings from the fabric store, those plastic rings a great deal of beading. I have about five favorite embroidery stitches I use extensively. Uh, and a number of years ago, a woman was coming from England who was a well-known embroiderer. And so I arranged for her to come to Anacortes to do a workshop. And I just could, you know, I'd been embroidering since I was six, but I thought, oh my goodness, I am with the queen of embroidery. Um, and the first thing she said, and I'm in the front row, you know, ready to take notes. I've conned all my friends to take the course. The most stitches you need in your repertoire are three. And if you're terribly clever, two stitches will last you a lifetime. And I was appalled. I mean, I'd spent all this money. And she is so right. I just continued to apologize. There's about three stitches that my mind and hand love doing. So it's pretty much beading, wrapped rings. I do a lot of cords. So I'm couching on braids and cords I have made. So it's pretty much a basic kind of cycle. A lot of running stitch. Um, The garments, because I line them all, I need to adhere the lining to the body of the cloth without having it drape incorrectly. So my finishing technique often are small quilting stitches through the fabric. So it's, it's a technique that's gone on for centuries, but it works. It's functional and works very well. I love you. What you said about dyeing the silk lining 
and then hand stitching the the lining. It's it's sort of this you have this embellished outside, but then there's also this secret inside that's very well taken care of. And that what has happened, which was totally unexpected, because I don't have seams. All the edges are finished, so edges butt to edge. Usually using it's called a faggoting stitch. It's a wonderful stitch. So everything's finished. There's no raw edge. Uh, and my probably half of my garments are totally reversible, which I discovered in one of my first fashion shows. The model put it on inside out. We all liked it better than right side. So it, and people love opening the garments to see the magic within. And it's to me, it's the same philosophy of you meet someone and you have that immediate judgment, if you will, or thinking you know who this is, person is. And then there's always the butterfly within. And as you get to know an individual, you become to really cherish and appreciate their individuality. So I think there needs to be magic on the body and the inside should be as beautiful as the outside. You mentioned that you started a, a class in design and creativity in your 70s, but you've clearly been working on this for years. So can you tell me how you developed this method and style for what you do? Well, first of all, it goes back to the first weaving convergence, 1972 in Detroit, Michigan, a session that changed my life. My children were two, four and eight. I had not been away from home by myself in 12 years of marriage. We had no money. We had little children. And I talked about it so much. My husband finally said, would you go and just quit talking about it? And my niece volunteered to watch the children. So I'm in Detroit. I didn't know any other weavers. Here are 900 people. I'd found my tribe. I didn't realize it, but I had. I went to everything I could go to and one was a two-hour session by Roz Berlin, and it was about weaving your clothing. And I wrote in my journal, June 1972, from this day forward, any major piece of clothing I wear, I will weave. And that started me down the path. It took me a while to get there. The first piece, I wove it, I cut it. Of course, I didn't know what I was doing, so I'm cutting to a Vogue pattern. The edges raveled. I glued them with Elmer's glue, which made it extremely secure and gave me red welts on my body. Uh, I still have the piece. I mean, it's just awful. But it was the start. And that's when I thought, okay, this won't work. I don't know how to cut hand wovens. I didn't know Daryl at the time, the guru of tailoring material. Um, Daryl Lancaster, you mean. Exactly. And so that was what I did. And Several years later, I went to a regional conference uh, in Victoria, and one of the women said, could you come to our guild and show us how to make clothes like those you are wearing? And I took a deep breath and said, certainly, and came home and made up a workshop based on all of the problems I had faced trying to pull this off. And my goal was you should teach a class that helps people avoid falling down the well, and if they do how you get back out. And then they told a friend who told a friend and a year and a half, I was in Alberta, Saskatchewan. The word went across Canada doing my three day clothing workshop. And I really enjoyed it. It was such fun to share it. And I began to submit applications to regional weaving conferences. And it took a while before, you know, I, I wrote articles, <clears throat> excuse me, for magazines 
just trying to get my name out there. So 40 plus years, I roamed the United States and Canada doing workshops on clothing, continuing to weave my wardrobe. And as I say, for people I love, and then I had a whole series of garments I hauled across the countries in two suitcases. In every class, women could try on a wide range of styles. I had the patterns for them. So then we could talk about fabric weight and color, finishes, joins. And my goal was to have women adorn themselves in wearable, attractive clothing. So that's where it all went. And then when I went back to school, it gave me the skill level for dyeing, uh, designing. I'd always figured out how to get the shape I wanted. But what the class did those eight years was give me the tools to get where I wanted to get. I've told my students, I said, it would be like you have this wonderful story to tell to these Japanese women, but you don't speak Japanese. And I'd have these wonderful ideas in my head. I did not know how to get them on my body. And I was given the tools. It didn't make it easy. But I'm comfortable now. If the lining doesn't come out like I dyed it yesterday, I'll see it later this morning. I can over dye it. I can discharge it. I can do piecework. So I'm comfortable going through the tools going back to school gave me. And it's been an exciting life. So have you, when you first started with your woven fabric and Vogue pattern, were you already someone who dresses in a way where you think about adorning yourselves and getting your ideas onto your body? No, I was not. I was Miss Polyester Kid. Um, I, I grew up in a town of 8,500. My dad was well-known. He was a state senator. I was Paul Levera's daughter, and I was Paul Levera's sister, a well-known attorney. I was Jack Mayer's wife. Kathleen and Peter and Ross Mayer's mother. And I wanted, I was misconformity. You know, if there was a party, I called to see what everybody else was wearing. The first time I wove the, the actually the Ruana, although the green, the ugly green dress, which I still have, I did wear. Actually, I wore it for about two years till the day I looked in the mirror and I said, Anita, that looks like it came from the basin of J.C. Penney's. And if that's what you're going to wear, save yourself time and money, go to Penny's and buy the dress. And that was the first small step away from conforming to others. And when I did the Ruana hand wove, it probably weighed 20 pounds, but I wore it with great pride and people asked about it and admired it, which was, you know, you don't need other people's approval to proceed with your life, but it was really empowering. So once I was there, then I was off and doing my thing gradually, you know, more outrageous, more confident as time went by. And now my story is if people don't turn for a second look, I've got to up my game because obviously I'm looking too much like the rest of the world. So it's it's who I am. I dress for who I am. And one thing I haven't noticed you saying so far is a lot of people talk about wearable art. And I, 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 you haven't used that word so far. Do you think of what you do as wearable art or do you think of it in some other way? I, I think that's such a difficult issue across the board. I've never been very clear about what it is. I want to make individualized, simple shaped clothing that women can wear 
and celebrate who they are. Whether it's art or not art, I am not privy to know that. Um, I make what I love. I have certain expectations of the standard for my own work. I don't care how long it takes, which is a blessing. Uh, so I've exhibited, uh, you know, in many shows. So I don't know, is it art? Is it, there's art in textiles that are garment shapes that are not wearable. A lot of things turned wearable art, you know, aren't. Um, so whatever works for people. I tell people I am a textile artist and I make simple shape clothing that work for everyday life on all shapes and sizes of women. I've heard you talk about having a, a mission for women to adorn themselves and feeling strongly that that women should celebrate their bodies no matter what they look like. And that is such a philosophy at the same time that you're talking about an evolving practice. Well, the thing that was joyful in the workshops is I had all these clothes of all shapes and types and we played dress up and someone would put something on and the, and the rest of the, I mean, we all just thought, Oh my, it was just a magical transformation. So there was that opportunity to put something on to see how it makes you feel. I used to do fashion shows at Convergence. I had petite women. I had 90-year-old women. I had women who weighed 250 pounds who were absolute, all of them, knockouts in the clothes they wore. They designed for their body shapes. They designed for fabric that moved Absolutely adoring themselves, have makeup and some jewelry on, stood up straight to prove my point that it isn't size that determines style. It's an individualized way of dressing and behaving. So I will continue to preach it to the end. So having dress up is so much fun. That's a wonderful message and one that I'm hearing a lot now, in, especially in counterpoint to you know, all of the, the diet apps and, and the, you know, get a bikini body sort of things. <laughs> well, even the professional people in the garment industry are finally realizing that everybody's a size four, whatever that is. There's just been this huge market for attractive clothing. It used to be so ugly, I thought, for larger women. Finally, the garment industry is realizing there is a whole lot more women on the other side of those numbers so there is much more of awareness, I think, now than ever before. But it's it's a difficult message, whether it's for young girls or older women. And did you think that before you started taking your workshops on the road and allowing people to play dress up? Or um, is that something that's sort of built up over time? It's once I realized it for myself and I couldn't wait to share the message that, hey, look, there, there's another way we, we can be doing this. So it was my own chapter at that point of my life that I just wanted to share. Good heavens, all of you can have fun clothes. I don't care if it's an outrageous, you know, silk scarf. And the clothes that, you know, I've been selling, of course, had to accommodate a number of th size, height women. And that was that's really been a very good experiment for me to find out what works and to see it on people. So it was my my own personal, I think, education has dramatically affected 
how and what I teach. So after that first green dress that you thought could have come from JCPenney's, uh, what was the next garment? It was the Rwanda. They hand woven two rectangles and hand spun, hand woven, stitched up the back that went over everything and anything. Uh, and it was so much fun to wear. And it was it would work on anybody. You know, you might have it narrower, lighter for smaller people. But I thought this this is really pretty cool. And I then I did a hand woven think of two long rectangles. It was like um, well, yeah, it was two long rectangles with much rich, wonderful weaving at the bottom in rich colors. It was white hand woven and there were fuchsias and purples and blues. I mean, it was really pretty startling. Just went over my head. But when I did that piece, I did not realize that there is shrinkage upon the loom, that what you put onto the loom and weave does not necessarily mean it comes off the loom and it wouldn't go around me. So, I mean, this was supposed to stitch on the sides, you see. So I went to the Whidbey Weavers Guild, who are women that changed my life. A number of them were widowed or had never married. The most adventuresome, supportive, creative women. What a joy I had. So I am there. And Thelma Brown, who is white-haired and probably was 85 at the time, I put this on and I'm really upset it won't fit. And she said, Anita, this is what you must do. You get to Seattle and get yourself a purple pair of tights and a purple turtleneck. Get some white suede ties and loosely tie it on the side. And you just wear that and flaunt it. And so I did. And I wore it at the Victoria Fashion Show. I'll never forget it. And it was, it gave, it. she empowered me. Uh, and so from that moment, I'm thinking, well, shoot, you know, I wasn't struck down uh, by some bolt of lightning for putting this outrageous garment on my body. So it was that kind of an evolution. So what was the first one that where you took needle and thread uh, to stitch on it? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think and I have, still have it. Um, it was a vest I saw in an ethnic Garment collection, the University of Washington uh, was from Romania, very simple shaped, covered with embroidery and and mirrors. And I had taught myself how to do mirrored work. So I wove it and covered it with embroidery. And I still have it. I still love it. I still wear it. And that's when I'm thinking, oh, I could make cloth on the loom and make it my cloth and then do wonderful things to it. Then I discovered fulling, you know, loosely weaving fabric and shrinking it down. And then I moved into all kinds of coats and vests with embroidery because that was such a wonderful fabric to play with. So it's been one step at a time. Then I, a few years ago, I got into rust dyeing onto silk and I could hardly leave that alone. So each, you know, each article, each person, each workshop gives me the opportunity to try something. And I have the privilege, you know, of doing selling the garments was a wonderful way to try out a number of ideas I had from class that I hadn't had time to try before. Experiment. And dear Lori would put it in the shop and they sold and I could go out and buy some more yarn and some more fabric. So it was a wonderful incentive to try some techniques 
I hadn't gotten to. I have all, I have notebooks of ideas for creativity and surface design and dyeing. And there's never enough hours. I loved being home during the pandemic. I have to tell you, I was in the studio from 10 to 5, literally seven days a week, making things. Um, and it was it was all this uninterrupted time to be creative. It was pretty amazing. Now, I noticed you say a couple times, you know, even your green dress, you said that you still have it and your white and fuchsia, fuchsia I don't know what you call it. Was it a Rwanda? Was it a vest? Your- it, was a, it was a long tunic. Long yeah. tunic. Oh, the, uh, there was the Rwanda, the white piece that Thelma told me how to fix was a tunic. The mm-hmm. Rwanda was handled right. And you've mentioned that you still have a number of these. I don't know how many of us can say that we still have pieces of clothing from all that time. Well, it was partly the teaching. I mean, there was no better presentation in a clothing workshop to share. And I shared it in lectures across the country. I called it the pukey green dress. So I hold it up. I don't know why I chose that fabric. And then I talk about cutting it and the Elmer's glue. And then I got polyester yellow lining to line it because the glued edges gave me rashes. I had a green zipper and this two-inch ham um, with, you know, that bias stuff you buy. It, oh, I mean, it's just really bad. And I said, it's, this is the most important garment I ever wove. Because I did it. I learned. I wore it. I moved on from that. So it will, you know, be cremated with me. I also have the bog jacket, hand-woven, hand-spun, hand-woven, that we all made and. At some point, when it sort of came back a few years ago, there was an article in Handwoven. It's a few times I've written a negative letter. And I said, okay, people, let me explain something to you. The bog coat only works on women who have precisely the same size bust and hips. It fits perfectly if you put your hands straight out and never bend your arm because there's a yard of fabric in the armpit. We need to put the bog jacket back in the bog as we and move on. So I still have that one to show classes too. This doesn't work as a garment on the human body. This is why it doesn't work. So all the other teaching things, I last year I contacted a regional Skagit Valley Weavers Guild, and they're all former students of mine that, oh gosh, 40 years ago started a guild. And I proposed, I said, I have a number I had about 30 pieces for teaching. I said, they've never been worn, but they've been tried on. And I had them all dry cleaned. And I said, how about I come over? I want to have a sale. It's $50 per garment. And I'll share percentage with the guild. And so we had this rousingly, I got rid of everything. So all the teaching pieces are gone because I don't want my daughter stuck with all of this stuff. So that's what I took care. I'm having... In August, during our 60th art festival, I'm doing an evening uh, celebration of clothing. And it's a ticketed event with hors d'oeuvres and drinks. And we're going to do a short fashion show. And then we're rolling out racks. And I have 60 garments that are for sale with a percentage going to the art festival. So I'm getting my inventory reduced in that manner. And if I sell them, then I can take my trip next year to France. So there you are. <laughs> That's, the way, it, <laughs> Why That's France? the way it works. I've traveled a great deal. 
mostly because I worked with two different craft tour companies who I helped would find people to go because I had contact with women who wanted a well-done craft tour. And so for doing that, they would pay my way and give me a salary so I could collect textiles. And then that sort of went, you know, that, that ended. And then my friend and I have continued to travel on our own. So the October of last year, we were supposed to do the barge trip in France and canceled it. So it ends with four days in Paris. I can't wait. So we've rescheduled. So I will be again traveling, which has been much too long. What have been some of your favorite places to go and and look at textiles or learn about textiles? My most favorite place is India. I've been six times. I'm intrigued with the culture, the people, particularly Northwest India, the women's adorn, the tattoos, the bangles, the religion, the language, the philosophy, closely followed by China. And I've been there a number of times, mainly because I was working with the travel companies. Uh, Just total inspiration on every level. And my whole bedroom has India fabrics in it one way or another. And so I've been really blessed and I am grateful. And it was, I never could have traveled where I traveled on my own or with Jack and myself with children and expense of raising a family. And those are not easy places to go and learn about something in depth and specific. I, I was in China just just briefly, and most of the textile production was was not someplace that I would have gone as a tourist. And I couldn't necessarily, I couldn't really communicate with people. Right. And it was also sometimes hard to convey that my interests were different from other tourists. Ah, yes, which is why. So I worked with Craft World Tours with Tom. I don't know. I've lost track of how many years. His goal was to visit a country to meet local people, eat local food, see local crafts. And we would do four-week trips with 20 people. So he had the context. We're in the homes. We're, there are places in China, if you knew, you would not as an individual be able to get in, but a group could. So that was the joy. And then I worked with my friend Melly from Turkey for a number of years, and exactly the same thing. We would be in, in people's homes. We were in villages. We met the artisans. We block printed with them. We embroidered with the women in India, singing songs back and forth, and then exchanging things through the interpreter. So the there are tours. There's tours right now to Guatemala that are into villages. There's tours to Italy. There are all kinds of amazing opportunities to travel and see crafts and meet the men and women who are the artisans doing that. Maiwa, you know, in Granville Island in Vancouver, BC, her trips to India are phenomenal. So there are opportunities now, but it is almost impossible on your own to find out how to get there to make the arrangements. So working with someone else or a company, a leader who their their expertise is that very thing is ideal, of course. It costs money. There's no question about it. So, you know, I would sell and I have my travel account uh, is what I have done. And then when there was enough, I could take another trip. So this might be kind of a leading question, but one of the things they say about travel is that 
it changes you. I mean, you go to a place and you come back different. And especially since you were going to look at textiles, do you notice after you've gone someplace that you can see uh, the influence of it in your clothing? Certainly that. No question about it. I have pieces all around my studio. More importantly, to the day I die, truly, I will not turn on a faucet and what clean water comes and not be aware. Even I don't care if I'm in a hotel. I turn water off when I'm brushing my teeth. I take the world's shortest showers. I will also never be unimpressed with the fact I put clothing in this machine. I push a button and it comes out clean. I've watched the women of the world haul water on their heads for miles, washing things in the river, trying to keep themselves and their children clean. My whole acceptance of the privileges in this culture has absolutely been affected by what I've seen in third world countries. Food alone, what it takes for a woman to prepare food for her family, haul the wood for the fire, haul the water, prepared under the most difficult of circumstances. It's humbling. I want every child in this country to have the opportunity to do a work project abroad, travel abroad, go to school abroad, get away from your comfort zone, be a part of what it takes to be a family and try to live in some really horrendous circumstances. And of course, the refugee problem now is more than in front of us. So no, it's changed my outlook on life. It, I truly get up each morning to celebrate this very day. Gratitude. I do a gratitude journal every day. I write, I keep a journal and there's my five gratitudes. And sometimes it's hard. Um, there are days where, yeah, it's hard. I'm hard put to find something. But nothing more than I, this morning I could hear the quail out eating the bird seed. So what gratitude does for me on a daily basis is make me pay attention. And it's some days are harder than others. There are some real low points. We all go through that. But, you know, a deep breath, the travel, just I am so blessed to be able to do that. And I'm not done yet. As I said to my children, I have places to go and things to see. So your mother is not staying put. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you mentioned food and water. In the clothing world, in the textile world, commonly water can be a big issue. I mean, sometimes textiles use a lot of water. So having a, a garment that you keep forever is in its own way a practice of saving water and, and celebrating water. And as you know, in many numerous cultures of the world, probably less so now, but for a very long time, a woman had two garments, the everyday garment and the one for special events and festivals. And, you know, that that's what she owned as clothes. A student of mine who had been Peace Corps in Africa, and I've never forgotten this, was working in a small village. And the young African girl who was nine or 10 said to her, why do you have so many shoes? You only can wear one pair at a time, which I think is a very provocative, brilliant question. We have so much in our culture. We rent places to store all of the material goods we can't fit in our homes. There's something very wrong with this. So garments, I've I've been wearing some of my hand-woven garments. I did the dress for my first child's wedding. I'm still wearing it. I mean, it's a well-woven, well-made, simple shape garment 
lasts for centuries. And then as in Finland, if it starts wearing out, then you, you make rag rugs. I mean, there's no, you use it to the last thing. And I love that concept of every little bit, snip and pieces utilized. I don't know anybody who wears their mother of the bride dress. To anywhere oh. except a wedding. <laughs> oh, well, mine was not the normal mother of the bride. Of course. Yes, of course. That's right. Yes. So, no, it's still with me. And it still goes out to special events. I remember seeing somewhere you talk about, you know, you, you mentioned the outside and inside of your garments, but then you also have, you call it a uniform. Right. My uniform for me is, well, I, I still have it. It's a long black, long sleeve black dress. Or I have a black turtlenecks, short sleeve, long sleeve, black skirts, black leotards. When I travel abroad, I'm more comfortable in skirts than in pants. I have two black skirts uh, with elastic waist, sleeveless, long sleeve, black top. And I'm looking different every day. I have lightweight scarves, silk little overtops that I can put on. I, I was gone three weeks with a carry-on because The uniform, I'm making a creative covering to go over the uniform. I tell my students, the uniform can be jeans and a turtleneck. It can be a long dress. It can be a skirt and a top. Whatever your comfort zone in and your favorite color, you know, choose your red, blue, and then you make pieces that go over that, which to me makes so much sense. I don't have to worry about fit, the bust or the hips, the things hang from the shoulder, more shaping to vests, of course, but still I have very simple square armhole vests that work on a wide range of people. I have A-line vests. I have a long sleeveless vest that has been woven by many, many students because it works on a lot of people. You mentioned that you started all this at your first convergence, where it was the first place that you'd met weavers. But that means that somewhere before then, you were a spinner and weaver. Oh, yes. Okay, that's the main story of my life. I would not be here today without her. My dear mother-in-law, Marcel Mayer, was the weaving instructor in Seattle. She had learned to weave for doing physical development after World War II, and that's when she learned to weave, and she ended up teaching at Edison Technical School. It was the only place you could take a weaving class. I was dating her oldest son, Jack. The first time we were at their home, Marcel had three looms in the living room. I did not know what they were, but I thought, I want to know this woman. This looks pretty interesting to me. I'd grown up with a really creative family. I learned to stitch and, you know, I tried making pottery and all the usual, tried my hands at candle making and all those things. And what Marcel did, as each son married, she gave each daughter-in-law, as a wedding gift, a 36-inch floor loom and weaving lessons. I kid you not. It never took with the other two. But I, you know, I was a middle child and Marcel gave me the loom and she came up with to help me warp. And the first thing I I had was I was weaving six yards of fabric. It's a real lightweight wool, which I thought was the most boring thing I had ever done. But I was a dutiful daughter-in-law and, and I'd get stuck and she'd drive the two hours from Seattle and help me out. So then she, I had, I wove some rugs And then I wove some placemats. So she's kind of walking me through. At one point, it was late fall. She gave me this great big container of jute in a lot of colors. You know, it was that. And I thought, okay, this is the deal. 
I need to be more comfortable warping the loom. I'm doing it with her, but I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. I'm going to warp the loom one time and weave a rectangle, fold it, line up, make a purse and make a handle. I'll do these as gifts for people. And so I put on warp after warp. You know, I had Davidson's book and I turned the page and tried to, to, you know, to read what I was doing. And I had done about 10 purses. And I was, now I'm really comfortable with warping. I get it. And my, I still played bridge at night frequently because we were all young mothers with little kids. And my friends came and they bought my purses. And I'm thinking, hey, wait, this is not too cool. This is really neat. So I opened my own savings account. 3365, I will never forget it, deposited the money and bought some more yarn. And I'm thinking, this is the way I, if I can weave things, sell them, then I have my resource to buy more yarn, turn another page. And that's what I did for about three to four years. I had things at the UN. I had things on consignment in shops. I had things wherever they were. And of course, you know, we're into the 60s. Crafts are big. And when things sold, I went out, bought some more yarn, tried something else, turned the page. So that was what I was doing. And then a speech therapist for my youngest child, Michelle Whitlinger, many people will know her as the dye lady. We being good friends. And she said, I want to know how to weave. You need to teach that. So I thought, well, okay. So I called the community college and blatantly said, I am a weaving teacher, which was just a bold-faced lie. What do I need to do for there were 10-week, once-a-week adult education courses then? And they said, get 12 people to pay $15 for the course. I said, okay. So I conned friends, uh, twisted a few arms, and had my first class to go, but I did not have looms. But fortunately, in this period of time, Esther Dendel's book, embroidery as easy as weaving or weaving as easy as embroidery. And it was how to weave on cardboard. So I taught my first two years of classes, giving them cardboard. We warped the cardboard. They wove tapestries. They wove, and Michelle pounded nails in the board and wove a vest. Uh, they wove pieces and made three-dimensional dolls. So this, this was, now this is more income, which is pretty cool. So I'm pulling back from selling because now I've got, money from teaching, but then they wanted real weaving. So I found a put Magnolia Weavers in Seattle. I would rent 12 table looms, those terrible ones with the harnesses you lift up. It's just awful. And I'd go to Seattle, haul them and taught beginning weaving on those looms. And one of my students, and they were narrow with those terrible, they were just awful. That If people did that, they'd weave forever on something else. But she wove wedding fabric for her daughter so that then got me into teaching. And then when I did the convergence, went to Victoria. Now I'm doing three-day workshops in other locations. So I cut back on adult ed and moved on to doing workshops around the country. So that's been the evolution. And all through that time, I attempted to submit articles to Handwoven Magazine. I entered jury shows around the country to keep my name there Anytime I'd be accepted to teach at a conference, you know, if I was at Intermountain, there, there's, you know, 800 people from five states. So then I would get requests for workshops. So it was, the sequence was great. Did I hear you say you had garments at the UN? Yeah, I, no, I did. I had towels, hand towels and scarves. 
we had a friend who worked at the UN. And so he took them back and submitted them at the gift shop there. So that was exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. It's kind of, it's not you traveling, but your projects are here at the UN. That's amazing. Well, yeah, it was, it was exciting. You know, people locally commissioned me to do upholstery and placemats. And so any money I could earn that way allowed me then to do some other things. At the first convergence, I had still had the loom my mother-in-law gave me. And I saw the Norwood cherry loom and fell in love with it. And I literally came home. Our art festival has always been in August. I literally wove night and day with using grocery money for yarns, submitted and had a booth at the art festival. And I sold enough to buy the Norwood loom. And Marcel allowed me, I gave my loom to the school that she had given me and bought a Norwood. And I've had a Norwood ever since. So, and that was exposure too. For most of the people that I know, getting a loom and weaving lessons for a wedding gift would be the most amazing gift. And yet I can think of plenty of people for whom that would be such an albatross. <laughs> yeah, that's the woman said, gosh, that was really nervy of her, wasn't it? And I said, well, I never thought about it because, you know, I was a, a dutiful daughter-in-law. I thought, gosh, this, this could be really fun. And as I say, one daughter-in-law carried that loom around the country every time her husband got transferred and finally admitted she was never going to weave. And I think that the other one, she quit quite early on. But of course, that gift of Marcel's means I've written books, traveled the world, had experiences and adventures that would never have been a part of my life without her generosity. It's quite amazing how one word, one lesson, one workshop, one woman you meet, one gift, one sharing changes the trajectory of your life. I'm here because of Marcel's wedding gift, which I think is exciting. That is wonderful. Now, you mentioned something about, I think you, you said your Ruana was hand-woven and also hand-spun. Are you a spinner yes, as well? I was. The women in the weaving in the Whidbey Island Weavers, my wonderful mentors, who I didn't realize till many years later, how these women, 70, 80, 90, that were just go for it, creative women, totally impacted me. I did not know that. But they decided that we all needed to learn to spin. And Anne Murkark, our leader, we ordered them from New Zealand. And they were something like $15 for those looms. And we had to stain them and put them together because we had this big order. So then... Looms or spinning wheels? Spinning wheels. Yeah, I can't remember the make of it. But anyway, they were New Zealand and they came you know, all packaged up and we had to stain and assemble. So then took spinning lessons. So most evenings I was spinning. Then as I got more into handwork, I was more interested in handwork. I was never a really good spinner, but what I did discover, which was fun, I started spinning silk and I'd spin it fairly fine and then ply it with a commercial fine silk. And in the dye, the subtleness of the commercial silk to my hand spun was just lovely. It created an illusion that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So I just got tired of dirty sheet, you know, in my washing machine, you know. Oh, and, you know, and then, you know, I was doing all kinds of rabbit hair. I was trying all, all the usual stuff. 
but I ended with the silk and then I had the spinning wheel for a long time. And then I just was too involved. I'd much rather do the handwork. So that was part of my life. I respect them who do it considerably. It's a real skill level. But I love, in a way, hearing about the things you used to do, but don't anymore, because it can be so easy to think, well, you know, you started with Marcel and now you and, and it's been a straight line until here you are now. And it's interesting to hear about the different explorations. I was just talking to a friend about that because there, everyone's very surprised that as of the event in August, the sale, I'm not doing any more clothing to sell. It's finished, over, done with. I've been there, done that. And I'm, I'm into another whole series, which has nothing to do with selling. And what I'm planning to do, and I think it's going to be nothing but fun, any garments that are left, and there'll be a lot of them because, you know, you only sell so many. I'm going to do a fall event probably at the senior center. And depending on how many garments I have left, I'm going to invite that many friends who have supported me all these many years. And there's going to be a party and everybody's going to go home with a garment of their choice and make a donation to the senior center, which I think will be a win-win. It will get my inventory on people roaming the world. I love it. My little butterflies will go out and the center can have some income. So I'm through with clothing. And someone said, oh, you can't be. I said, no, it's clothing to sell. I'm just working on some major pieces now, uh, which is another whole direction what I'm going to do with my work. But I closed that chapter. And then I was thinking about how for many women, there are a number of chapters. And for me, the day comes and I'm perfectly clear. I remember calling the college when I decided I didn't want to do adult ed to tell them I was not going to teach that winter. And they said, well, you have to, it's in the catalog. And I said, trust me, I'm no longer teaching adult education. I was into doing the workshops. And about, so at Intermountain three years ago, I did my swan song lecture to them because they've been such supporters that I was no longer going to do conferences. It was just physically too difficult to haul suitcases. It wasn't as much fun as it had been. So that chapter, conferences were over. My swan song for Convergence was in Vancouver, Convergence. Love you all. It's been a great journey. I'm doing something else. So for me, it's been very black and white. I just knew at the point of deciding to do this trunk show uh, here. Okay, I've said everything I want to say in garments to sell. I've tried all the techniques, used all my best shapes. Uh, I want to just focus differently. And I think it's important to say a comfortable, it's been great. I'm through. I'm moving on to something else. But it'll always be textiles for me, always and forever. Do you teach anywhere now? Do you teach locally or are you really involved with your studio practice? No, I, I was up to the pandemic. I still want to do some workshops locally, mostly one day on journaling or surface design. I, I do, I've done a workshop of one day where they get to sample, uh, make a whole notebook of different ways to do surface design. So one day things for guilds in the area, it has to be drivable. I'm not roaming far afield. So that I think will be fun. And I still, I got rid of a lot of the teaching materials because I know a lot of it I won't do again. And that was getting way of the clothing because I'm not going to do the clothing workshop ever again. So, yeah, it's, we'll see how it works. You know, 
what you're saying about knowing that you're done. So many people, myself included, really hate to say no. And it seems like you are, whether whether you started off being comfortable that way or whether it's something develops, you know, being able to trust your gut and say, I've, nope, I'm done with that. Well, I, you may know I've written a book, it's a long out of print, called I Don't Do Guilt Anymore. It started when Linda Legon, when I did my first book with her, Clothing from the Hands That Weave, wanted an introductory chapter. So I'm sharing my life story. So when I did the second book, then people really wanted to know then what happened. So I had done a lecture about being born Catholic and guilty, you know, from the day I was born. So but part of that story is I realized I was doing a whole lot of jobs in the community. I'd done many times before. I now think my name was on a telephone post. If you need a volunteer, dial her number. She'll say yes. I really believe that. And I decided I sat down one one day with a glass of wine and wrote down what the most important things were. My children were still small and it was time with my children and be creative, be at my loom. Those were the things and my health, certainly. And then I wrote down the list of what I was doing which went on and on, all worthwhile causes. But I thought, this is ridiculous. And I truly did this. I had a five by eight card by the phone. And on it, I printed, Anita, just say no. Do not explain why you're saying no. Do not feel guilty. This is totally a true story. Jim Bergeson, my classmate called, said, okay, Anita, we're doing another class reunion. and We need you to decorate the Catholic gym again. And I said, no, Jim. And there's this terrible silence. And you want to explain. I have three children. Well, he's going to have five. I have two. I mean, just. And I said, if I think of someone who might do that, I'll give you a call back. And it took me almost a year to convince Anna Cordes I meant no. I still do things for the community. I do the studio tour each year. I've done programs for the LaConnor Quilt Textile Museum. I've invited people into my studio for tours. If it's a one-time thing, I will say yes. Basically, no has become a guide. And it's a perfectly fine, simple word. Each person has to decide their priorities. And priorities change. So what you were willing to do two years ago, maybe not now, what you want to do now, you wouldn't have been in a position to do two years ago. So I have very clearly decided how to spend my remaining years, and it's going to be my choices. Family always in there. Does it get easier to say no? Oh, it's just automatic. And I've also learned well, even the, this doing the podcast, I mean, this is just a really good example. So when you contacted me, I thought, oh, well, gee, that'll be fun. Sure. That is usually my tendency when I get a request. Little did I, did I realize what was involved. I'm so glad I'm doing it. But without Brenda, I, I wouldn't have been able to. I mean, I, I don't have that skill level. So I was laughing about now when someone calls, if I'm thinking, oh, that might be fun to do. I am saying, let me give it some thought and call you back rather than my spontaneous thing to say is yes, because I think a lot of things are fun. So I'm just better about before saying the yes, thinking it through. And as Brenda said, now, see, if this comes up again, I'll know how to do it on the podcast. But uh, 
I just, it was such a joyful request. I just thought it would be so wonderful to do. I'm glad we snuck in under the water. (laughs) Well, sharing journey is always important. And I think for, for younger women, just being aware of the obstacles and taking deep breaths and, you know, not being afraid to take a chance. Saying yes to adventure is equally important. So it's a balance. It's always a balance. You mentioned that you have some major pieces and another whole direction in mind for your work. Oh, I'm really excited. Okay, Can you share it or is it your your secret? Oh, no, I'm excited about it because I'm working on it as we speak. For a long time, as I traveled, I picked up newspapers in various countries of the world. I was so intrigued with the script, the the writing. It's just artistic. My husband had been specialized in a certain kind of stamp collecting and had a wide range of envelopes through the years from all over the world. And when he passed, I kept a lot of those just because I'd been a stamp collector once. And I thought for a long time, I want to do something with those envelopes and those wonderful papers of different languages. And as with a lot of other things, you know, it takes me on major pieces. I I do keep a journal of ideas. I'm writing things down. And then I wake up, woke up one day, literally, and thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm doing long kimono. It's called a dofuko kimono. I've made it before. But it's a long kimono with a large sleeve, which is a perfect canvas. And my series is a tribute to written words. And on the one I'm finishing, I've transferred to silk, uh, you know, with the, you can do that on the computer, uh, the envelopes and hand sewn them to the panels. And then I transferred to silk a variety of the language pieces and they're on the reverse side. And that was so much fun. I thought, well, what about if I did tribute to women's words? Rita, a woman who's directing the art festival, saw my piece when she was here and said, oh, I was found all these letters written in this wonderful handwriting from the late 1800s. Let me share them with you. So she came and then I started pulling out postcards I had and letters from Jack's mom wrote to her friend. And I thought, oh, tribute to women's words. That would be the second, same kimono shape. And then I have for years collected photographs of women in secondhand stores. I used them on some of my earlier pieces. So the second kimono will be the letters from women on one side, photographs of women on the other. And the third one now may also be, because this is leading on, there'll be three, tribute to one woman's journal. And I've kept journals traveling on my life. During the pandemic, I did a journal page every single day for a year with pictures, drawings, and words about what I was grateful for that day. And there's one page that's totally black because I just had nothing to say. So this is what my plan is with these pieces. It's set up a one-day symposium. I see it at our senior center, which is so wonderful. The three pieces would be on view. There will be tables with six people to a table, three senior women, three younger women. And I know a lot of senior women. I would work with the schools to pull some middle school, high school. I was involved with something like this at Edmonds a few years ago. At each table is the same question. 
for the six to discuss. Each table has a scribe. What was your first date like? What are you most afraid of? What was the message you got so tired of you? That sort of thing. And then we'll do that. Each table, give them time. And then the scribes will share what was said at their table. And then we'd have lunch. I will have a display of all my journals and any of my friends who do journals. And there'll be a very small fee for lunch. And everybody will have a journal. I'm going to set up paints, pencils, all the things I use. And each woman will start and girl will start their own personal journal, which is what my story has been all the time anyway, is younger learning from elders who've lived a life. So that's going to take me probably two years. And I don't know what comes after that. But I'm excited about using my clothing as a statement to get other women of ages involved in thinking about the importance in today's world of written words, because it's not happening. We all know that Hamilton wouldn't have been written if there hadn't been letters between he and his wife. I mean, across the board, I have letters mom wrote when she and dad, when my father in his mid-60s went back to Italy from which he immigrated when he was 12. And I have letters from mom that I will use. So things written are forever. Emails are not. So this is my next lecture. (laughs) My current soapbox is preserving the written word. Well, that really hits home as a publisher of magazines on paper. And yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I take a daily newspaper I have for, I don't know, before we were married. And I will continue to, I know I can read it on the computer. I want to hold that paper in my hand with my cup of coffee. And I want to support having a newspaper in my area. So, yeah, it has such impact. We all know trying to succeed. It's it's a challenge. So that's where I'm at. Anita, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with me. And I'm selfishly have enjoyed it so much for myself, but I'm I can't wait to let our listeners share this conversation, too. Well, I mean, there's nothing more fun than talking about what you love best. You know, always always a listening ear is it's pretty wonderful. So I appreciate this opportunity at this point in life. So um, I just it's never too late. So and I'm, well, I want you to know that I am 88 years old. And when I do the barge cruise, it's for my 90th birthday. And so it's never too late to be creative, reach out, share, learn mentor younger people, younger women. We just, as older women, we need to share our journeys. And I think that this is one of the best rules that grandmas can give. I just love grandmothers in the schoolroom. So that's our job. And we need to be doing it and reaching out. So that's the core. Weaving made it all happen. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) Oh. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.